0: As Pacific Islanders, we live both on the land and the sea. Those two things sustain us.
1: When our natural environment is threatened, whether it's by climate change, coral bleaching, mining or logging, our cultural connections, our livelihoods and our way of life suffer. As Pacific Island women, we should be able to fight back against environmental destruction. But it's not that simple.
2: To have women with the power to say anything about yeah.
3: Traditionally, it's it's the men who are the ones that make the decisions.
2: So where
1: do women have power to make a change when it comes to conservation and environmental protection?
4: It's really a delicate balance that you have to ensure that the women in leadership in the local communities are not only respected, but they are leaders themselves. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about power, politics, and
1: patriarchy, and the fierce eco-warrior women fighting both industry and men to save their local environment. We all know how big a threat climate change is to the Pacific. So is deep-sea mining, logging, overfishing, overpopulation, and tourism. But these industries are also sources of income, particularly for men and for governments. And in the deeply patriarchal societies where they operate, who is leading the fight to prevent them from destroying the natural environment? Today, I'm going to speak with five Pacific women about the environmental damage hurting their homes and find out what they are doing to prevent it. In Papua New Guinea, the Sipik River is a vital resource for people in the country's central north. Florence Hui works with Project Sipik to raise awareness about the damage mining and logging is having on the river.
2: The Sipik River actually from before as my mother and father and to me, the Sipik River was totally green. My families collect the fish well, crocodiles well and they make money out of that and all of us went to school and nothing wrong, wrong with that. But the livelihood currently now, with the logging company, the livelihood is already changed.
1: How is the logging impacting the, the river?
2: The Sipek River, water was badly polluted with chemicals. Fish and crocodiles were cast out into faraway lakes and rivers by the pontons and tugboats. Grounds erosion take place everywhere in the whole of the Sipik River by the uh, rolling waves of the tugboat and pontum. And at the same time, pontum and tugboat was a big problem. It's uh, 1,500 uh, 1, logs have been sank into the Sipik River. And now the women of the Sipik River, they are not waking. They are not making garden along the Cipic River. They are not paddling. It was pontoon and tugboats all their lives.
1: When you're working with the neighboring villages and talking to people about, you know, what is happening, what are they telling you? What are you finding out? Uh, what, what do they know about what's happening around them?
2: The old village people, all Sioux River people are telling us that. Before, they have a good fish. Now they don't have good fish. They don't catch fish. Before, we have many crocodiles along the sandy banks, and many Cypic men, they hunt for crocodiles, and they send crocodile skin, and they get the money, and they hunt for it, and they sell it in the market, and they get the money. But now, they don't catch crocodiles. People are complaining about this. Before, the village people along the Sipec River, they are richly blessed with the fish and their own sago. But now they are complaining, they don't have much fish. they don't have enough fish to feed their own family. That is their crime.
1: What is it that you are doing to try to help to protect the river?
2: I have no power to stop the logging company.
1: Why do you say that?
2: From now, the people are saying that um, to have women, we, we don't have power to say anything about this logging company or anything. They said men have power, so they are doing this with their own will.
1: So what are the men doing to try to address this issue and at least reduce the impacts of logging in the communities?
2: The men themselves, they are not doing anything, but some men, they are involved with the logging company just only for their bread and butter, and they don't worry about the other people in the village or along the Sipig River.
1: When you're talking to people and bringing up this issues and concerns, actually people who do listen to you, how are they responding and receiving the information that you're sharing with them?
2: The people from the Sipik River, they're responding well and they're receiving the message well. But the thing is our uh, presidents, LLG presidents, they are not with us. They are only had a side of the company. They are the ones who brought the company in.
1: Florence, how powerful are the logging companies? Do they create jobs or do they also influence yes. politicians with the decision-making?
2: Yes. They involve politicians with the decision-making. They involve police. They get a the police force all the way from Port Mosby down to the logging area. And the village people told us that they don't know where they will go. They don't have power. They don't have rights to talk over their land because the policemen are there.
1: Does that make it even more difficult to try to change, drive the change?
2: I think it's not difficult to make a change. If only, only the village people, they, they feel that it's, it's hard. But some people to step in to make the change, I think it will, it, it will make a change to them. But the the place where logging company is, they only select a place in a remote area where there is no people know how to read, write, illiterate So that's why they think that they can do anything they want. What
1: action needs to be taken to save the river?
2: We need to... Go back, awareness to the people, same time we we must ask the LG presidents with us and the councillors with our group, tell them what the damage of the logging company is doing right now and spoiling the water.
1: That was Florence Sui from the Sipik River who feels powerless as a woman to protest over damage caused by the local logging industry. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. In Fiji, women do have a stronger voice to advocate for the environment than in Papua New Guinea, but it is still an exercise in diplomacy. Susana Wanginbeta Tuisesa is the Programme Director at Conservation International, where rainforest conservation and sustainable logging is
4: also a priority. If we are talking about conservation and protection of forests, resources, then we must also think about livelihoods. How can we help communities generate alternative livelihoods so that they can make a living without having to access resources in the forest? There is an alternative source of livelihood that they could depend on. What are some alternative livelihoods for people? In Fiji, we look at things like uh, honey production, aquaculture interventions, ecotourism, and, of course, the planting of uh, tree orchards. But then again, you know, the intervention will depend on what the communities want. And we find that with women, a women's group, they prefer to have, uh, particularly up in the mountains, they want to have uh, fish ponds to provide protein for their families, and they want to do honey because it's... Uh, Not only something that they can sell to the local market, but also uh, something that they can use in the household. Uh, The new things that we are looking at promoting is vanilla. Uh, Some of the communities in the upland have taken up vanilla and intercrop vanilla into existing forests. So these are shade vanillas under existing forest areas.
1: In some other parts of the Pacific, I have spoken to women who are trailblazers in conservation, but they are hampered by the lack of power from men. What is the situation across the Pacific areas where you work in?
4: Where I work, I find that it's really a delicate balance, that you have to ensure that the women in leadership in the local communities Uh, not only respected, but they are leaders themselves in the organizations or associations that they're associated with. And that in itself would make a big difference because they already have this leverage coming with them because of their commitment and sometimes uh, their hierarchical position within the community. Uh, And so it's, you know leveraging that leadership role and supported by not only their immediate families, but also the whole community that's surrounding those ladies.
1: When you meet women who want to make a difference but don't know where to begin, what do you suggest to them?
4: I would suggest uh, going to the formal route first, because within each village, each community, there's always a formal route. And that formal route could be, uh, for instance, in Fiji, it's the Song Song of which is the national, I'm talking about an indigenous community. In Fiji, there is an indigenous women's group or association that is in each and every village. They have a member or they have a representative. And that's often where issues then tickled or brought through the district and then through the provincial uh, council for discussions. And then, of course, there's the the other government machinery, which is the Ministry of Women. I I guess now there's a whole web and complexity of how women groupings are actually managed, Uh, particularly in Fiji, it could be the same for other Pacific Island region. Uh, But I would then point to the Ministry of Women, which is uh, something that exists right across the Pacific, because oftentimes the Ministry of Women have programs, structured programs that would assist women uh, to get into business or, you know, get involved into organized activities around environmental conservation and so on. And then, of course, the other route would be through their own church groups, associations that are made or created by communities themselves. That may be something that they could easily get have access to because a cousin of a cousin of a cousin is involved and they could be just simply just asking around through their relatives and friends as to how they can get involved. So, you know, many of our societies are small. Everyone knows everyone else. And uh, these kinds of informal connections are how we thrive. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So there are definitely lots of uh, places that they could get information from and make sure that they get involved in a lot of activities, uh, prone supporting environment and uh, their own livelihoods.
1: That's Susanna Wangenbete Tuisese from Conservation International. bleaching, over and overpopulation are all impacting Pacific Islanders who live by the sea. There are many ways to reduce the damage and people like Sabrina Pina are fighting for a healthy ocean. Sabrina is from Solomon Islands but is in Fiji doing a Master's in Marine Science at the University of South
2: Pacific.
0: I grew up by the sea. When I was little, I witnessed a large part of the coral right in our draw them, just out on the shore like 10 white they underwent coral bleaching and all the coral died and from that comes the challenge of like there's no fish closer to the shore anymore and we have to like go further out in the open water which takes a time and energy to go and fish as I witnessed this I wanted to like work in a field where I can go bike and help my own people on how we can like, manage the marine resources so we can benefit from them.
1: Why is that happening? Why is there less fish now for the fishermen?
0: In the reef, yeah, like the reef system, the fish only comes to the reef if there's like much coral There's so much coral, so they can use it as their home. But now, reefs around here are like degraded, either by pollution or by climate change through coral bleaching. So there's less fish in the reefs and also over-harvesting. A lot of harvesting has been done. So like all the reefs, all the fish in the reefs are like of juvenile stage. And only the big ones like live in the deeper waters because the middle-sized fish have been caught and over-harvested. So now they have to go further out to do their fishing. So
1: uh, the over uh of fish, is that by locals or also commercial fishing is a problem as well?
0: It involves boat because now most of the commercial fishing, like in terms of like restaurants, yeah, restaurants, instead of going to the markets and purchasing from the locals who are selling, they tend to have their own boats and also they go out and do their own fishing. So when they fish, they caught like, large amount more than what the villagers catch and then they will come and use it for their own businesses this puts the villagers at a disadvantage so contribute with the commercial fishing that this is for the coastal fisheries so contribute with that like small businesses doing their own fishing instead of going to the market and purchasing from the locals they also add on to the depletion of the fish population around the reef areas. What are you doing
1: now to pursue this passion or dream that you have now?
0: I'm doing my master's in marine science at the University of South Pacific, So my field right now over in my undergrad days, I'm like, it's general if you're doing marine studies. So we did um, monitoring of coral reefs, collecting data, engaging with local communities. That is one of the most things I love about doing marine science at USP. We can go out and collaborate with other universities outside of the country, and also with local communities to get data and an understanding of how they use and manage their resources. And as I come to do my masters, I decided to focus on the processing of sea cucumber to veg steamer. So I'll be looking at certain ways in which it can improve the harvesting method, the processing method, so the veg which will be sold, is in is of quality state and. From this processing, you can also apply to other seafood, other seafood which can help the villagers on how they can preserve and keep their seafood catches so that when they sell it, at the end of the day, it's still in a quality form.
1: And it sounds like people can drive change in this space, locals and tourists. What do you want them to do to help improve the sea?
0: One of the main things in in which they can help to improve the sea is, like, when you go to a new place, like, especially coming to our countries to learn, like, our ways. Like, our Pacific Islanders are very close to the sea, and we easily pass this down through, like, stories and songs. We have strong cultural ties to the sea, and I think one thing the tourists could learn is... To learn our ways, do your research, be more aware of where you are going, what that place is like, and also so they can avoid like throwing rubbish or littering, they can, uh, so they can be aware of what sort of activities are allowed within the certain areas because not all areas um, include all sorts of like recreation activities. So by doing that, they can help contribute to keeping that area clean, or they won't be able to damage any habitats or the natural environment. Uh, Because sometimes when you're going out to certain places as a tourist, uh, the guide won't be like looking after you the whole time. So it's better to like learn about the place. And also um, by doing this, like when you go to certain places, you can also bring in money to help the locals, to help the locals. Because most of the villages uh, most depend entirely on what the tourist what tourism brings to our shores.
1: Great advice there, Sabrina. What are your future plans in this area?
0: So my future plan in this area is like um, to go back home because right now I'm studying in Fiji to go back in the Solomon Islands and to work the coral reefs and the animals in it.
1: Good on you. If you had a chance to encourage people like yourself and future generations to become eco-warriors... What do you suggest they do to really make a difference for the sea?
0: Yes, uh, one thing we can all do to make a difference for the sea is like to. As Pacific Islanders, we live both on the land and the sea. Those two things sustain us when money, when we don't have money. So the thing we can do is like uh, engage in a field, work in a field it it doesn't matter if you have a higher education or not, you can contribute by being part of some groups because right now there's a lot of groups doing activism and advocating for a cleaner environment, uh, a clean sea. So you can be part of that and you can learn along the way in which you can give your contribution in to protect the sea and also help by your community.
1: Sabrina Pina is researching sea cucumber nutrition and harvesting for her Master's in Marine Science at the University of South Pacific.
3: You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia.
1: In Solomon Islands, some organisations are combining environmental activism with training opportunities for women. Gretel Bonge coordinates the Women's Saving Club Groups across six tribes from Babatana Rainforest Conservation in Choysal.
2: When I work with women, I see some failures. I see that some women are empowering their livings in their families or in their community. When these programs are in a community, I see there are some more women are very empowered for this program. The responsibility that they in the community through conservation I'm doing some working like training with women in the community for holding money, like treasurer in the community. I'm training them to do financial training for keeping their money in the communities. And other trainings that women need in the community, like doing uh, occasional, like uh, catering. That's uh, my work in the community.
1: That was Gretel Bonge from Babatana Rainforest Conservation in Choiseul. Staying in Solomon Islands, the organization Nature Conservancy also supports and empowers women who want to play a more active role in conservation and environmental protection. Madeline Ero is a gender conservation practitioner with the organization.
3: For the Solomon Islands, it is a nation, a country that like more than 80% they depend directly Uh, with the environment for livelihoods and the communities are not homogeneous. They're made up of men, women, children. And in our communities, it's like half of the population are women and they, they interact with the environment every day. But then when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to like involving in especially in, in these uh, projects or in the structured way of making decisions about their environment or about development that that are happening in their environment or in conservation projects. Like when it comes to these management roles, usually women are not involved in that one. Traditionally, it's, it's the men who are the ones that make the decisions. They're the ones that... Um, In the meetings, they usually are the ones attending the trainings, setting management plans for their locally managed areas, yeah, and so forth. So usually the women's voice, their thoughts, their ideas are not captured. As a result of that, uh, they usually come up with plans that, that are not wholesome, I must say. It does not provide a place for the women. Some of the places where women usually go to find their food now a banned because they were not included in the initial part of planning for that place. Yeah, so, like, in order to avoid this kind, and in order to make the the outcomes are uh, more wholesome to the whole communities, we think that women must be part of the whole process.
1: You have trained women title ranges. Can you explain a bit more about this particular project? Sounds really interesting.
3: Mm. Uh, We've been doing turtle conservation for 25 years now. And in all these years, it's all men rangers. And so recently, we started to provide space where um, the women come in and talk about what they want to involve in. And so there was this group of women from a particular tribe where they are looking after leatherback tettles. They want to be part of the rangers group as well. So uh, we had to get them to sit together with the men, the the rangers, and they have this discussion, uh, talking to each other, airing out the doubts and clearing all these doubts. So finally, last year, we had to involve these women in training for rangers, uh, just as the first step and then get the women rangers to the actual site for work, for them to see how the work is going to happen, what are the roles, the responsibility of rangers. And I think also to answer some of the barriers, the men think why women should not be part of the rangers. So we provided that space for them last year. And after going through all this experience, uh, the women said, no, we can do this. We women can do the work. Men are doing as rangers. It's easy. We can do it. Finally, last year, I think the first three of women started to work with the men as part of the ranges for leatherback turtles. And because of that, I think some of the women were inspired by this as well. So for other sites, uh, there was interest coming in, more women wanting to join in that program. So, last two months ago, we trained around 13 other women. That's amazing. Well, yeah, 13 other women who we we had to run through the same thing: get them to the actual beach, get them to experience what it is like to work as rangers, and then like later on, ask them what they think about and they have the same response like it's it's not something too hard we, women cannot do it's just some cultural sensitivity issues of safety and security all those but it's something women can also do so now we have around 17 women who are trained and yeah they are available to work as rangers now that's wonderful to hear and are they locals they are locals Like there are a lot of conversations we have to hold between the management team, the communities, the male rangers about involving them. Especially the young women who have just finished from high school and are just living at the communities. These are the ones we target to. So they are women from that community that, that the nesting beach is on. Madeline, what are some of your highlights
1: working in the communities?
3: For me it's like also showing showing to the communities that women can also lead women can also work, women can also uh, make decisions within their communities. so to me, like they are role modeling a group where the little girls that are growing up they can they can learn from them.
1: Madeline Arrow is a gender. Conservation Practitioner with Nature Conservancy. Thanks to all my guests today, Madeline, Sabrina Pina, Susanna Wengenbate, Tuisese, Gretel Bonge, and Florence Sui. You are fierce eco-warriors, and I hope you have inspired other women and girls to join the battle. Thank you so much for joining me. Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is S-I-S-T-A-S at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, how do women in your society mourn? are the rituals and expectations and how do these traditions help us manage our grief
3: the elderly women
0: and the women who are maybe daughters uh, wives and that traditionally we expect them to sit and actually mourn not to be part of the looking after people that's where the cousins and the aunties and the extended family come in
1: that's next time on sisters let's talk Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunzner. Our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time.